From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. You can see me. Yes, that's right. We are live, unedited, and streaming all over the internet. So someone's going to have to clear up the mess at some point. <laughs> welcome to uh, welcome to Latopia After Dark. This is the second one for 1991. Where am I? 2008. We've got um, we've got a panel of currently three people, probably shortly to be joined by a fourth. Um, it's eight o'clock in London. In Los Angeles, it's 12 noon. In the east coast of America, it's 3 o'clock. But the lights are going down all over the world. Um, and as the lights go down, you'll like this. I thought about this about five minutes before we started. As the lights go down, the intellectual lights of our panel increase. Oh, dear. Yeah. Flattery gets you everywhere, doesn't it? The sheer, we're going to bask in the sheer light of pure intelligence tonight from... First of all, on the list is Dave Bartram, who you already heard quite a lot from in the first few seconds. Dave lectures in fine art, and he comes from England's West Country. And Dave, I, I think the, it, it's probably a good idea to explain where England's West Country is. Um, ooh, yeah, that's difficult. There's, there's a large eastern part, and somewhere to the left, we, we, we're kind of the toe pointing out into the Atlantic Ocean, rather forlornly forgotten on the end there. A lot of cider. Uh, not down this way. Um, yeah. That's that's a bit further further east, really. The side of thing. It's more. Um, well, I wouldn't like to say what it more is. Uh, they, or they like the real ales down here. I think. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All over all over the UK, really. Our next panelist is Beverly Gray. Um, this is Beverly's uh, first time on Latoper After Dark this year. Although she was, oh, I was going to use that word stalwart, but I don't think I'll use that word, Beverly. She was a, a regular <laughs> panelist last year. She hails from Indianapolis, and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel. How are you, Beverly? How's your year so far? Oh, it's been fine. It's getting really cold. We've got a, uh, an Alberta clipper coming in. And what that means is just this huge cold air mass is coming down from Canada. So they're predicting below zero weather. The good thing about Indianapolis is it doesn't stay around very long, a few days, and then we'll get back to normal. Nice. So Yes. Sounds bracing. It's, I basically stay inside. I don't know. <laughs> I would too. I don't like it that cold. <laughs> and from, um, I was going to say England's West Country. Now, in the sort of the, the sort of the nondescript sort of central bit of England, really, comes Richard Howes. And um, hello, hello, Richard. You're the, one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's highly prestigious National Academy of Writing. And could you, perhaps, since we're on a geographical theme to begin with, could you tell tell us where you are, more or less? Let's let's just pretend I'm in London. I, I mean, it, it makes it far easier for people to understand. Even uh, just 30 miles out from Bracknell, people don't seem to know where it is. I think they kind of like wipe it off their memory. So um, I suppose I should say it's like the uh, single parent capital of Great Britain. Oh, really? <laughs> what, what accounts for that, Richard? Uh, nothing to do with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can see where I was going with that, couldn't you? <laughs> yes. Fine. <laughs> Um, and also, perhaps, keeping our fingers crossed, um, perhaps about to join us, we, we don't quite know yet, um, will be another regular panellist, Donna Borman, 
who will be familiar to quite a lot of listeners to the Lutopia podcast for her interviews with um, a lot of writers, um, some you know very big best best-selling names, and some editors too. Donna is currently at the SCBWI uh, Florida Regional Conference, so she may be able to sneak out to join us about halfway through. We keep our fingers crossed. Now, what should we talk about tonight? Um, we've got a few things happening. The publishing world is still a little bit on the quiet side, actually, um, after the uh, the seasonal break. And it doesn't help, uh, as far as the UK is concerned, it doesn't really help them the fact that it seems as if millions of people every week are actually still going down with some ghastly form of influenza, which I've had, um, my family has had, and most of the people I know in publishing have also had, and it's not been much fun. So apart from the, the usual sort of January blues, people are sort of slowly easing themselves out of their sickbed and getting back to work. So it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a um, slow week overall. Although from my point of view, I've been catching up like mad with enormous amounts of, um, of work that, um, uh, that didn't get done because I was in bed. So what, what's actually happening out there? What are people talking about in the publishing world at the moment? Well, we're going to start with a, um, a piece written by Liz Thompson, who will be familiar to um, a number of listeners to the Litopia Writers Podcast. Um, she's the editor of Publishing News, and she's written an interesting piece this week entitled A Blow for Books. I'll just read you the uh, the opening paragraph. With Arcadia, that's the name of a, quite a small British publisher, and Daedalus, which is another publisher here, making high-profile appeals to the British Arts Council in England over proposed cuts in their regular funding, there was more bad news this week for the publishing industry. The British Council has effectively been dismantled to its, its 20 specialist officers, including the much-respected Susie Nicklin, head of literature, made redundant and invited to reapply for their jobs, which is always a horrible thing to happen to anybody, following a day-long meeting on Tuesday. Uh, despite what appears to be a fait accompli, the council's chief executive, Martin Davidson, wrote in The Guardian that very day about, quote, initiating a consultation period. And Mark Leffner, who's the general secretary of the Society of Authors in the, in the UK, thought it a very very sad day for literature, which will no longer be given prominence as an art form within the corridors of the council. I should perhaps just explain before we pass this over to the, the great and the good on our panel to, to talk about this, that there, we're talking about two bodies here. The Arts Council, which is primarily responding for, uh, responsible for funding the arts within the UK. There's, there's a second body that we've just mentioned there, which is perhaps a little confusing uh, for some listeners, called the British Council. Um, and they're responsible for a whole range of activities, actually, but basically exporting the, the, um, you know, the, the brightest and the best of uh, British intellectual property and all, all, all sorts of other commercial enterprises, too, worldwide. Um, and in the same week, actually, we've, we've got uh, one of my favourite new words. We've got a trifecta of cuts. There's another body called the Public Lending Right, um, which is run by the uh, another government department called the Department for Culture, Media and Sports. And it's announced that effectively the amount of money that's going into the public lending right purse is going to drop from something close to £8 million at the moment 
down to £7.5 million pounds later on. Um, and that's um, not adjusted for inflation or anything else like that. And again, I should, I should explain perhaps for people who don't know. Public lending right is um, an amount of money that's distributed to authors according to the number of times their books have been uh, borrowed by libraries within the UK. So for, for many authors, it doesn't represent very much money. Um, for some authors, the, the, the biggest best-selling authors, it can actually represent quite a lot of money indeed. So here we have a situation where public money seems to be progressively um, being driven away from funding the arts and specifically literature. We've got a, an interesting little opinion piece here from a publisher who is talking about this very issue. And he's, he's completely opposed to, to this idea. And he's, let me just quote you from what this, uh, this publisher says, and then I'll shut up and uh, ask our panel to talk about this. His, his name is Randall Northam, and he set up a small company, a profitable company, called Sports Books, and he publishes sports books. And he has applied, his company has applied once or twice for a little bit of public funding and been refused on both occasions. He says, uh, we applied for a grant to help improve the spec and marketing of a book of horse racing poetry um, called Shergar and Other Friends. <laughs> right up the Arts Council's alley, he thought. No, not so. They said our application was turned down because of, quote, artistic quality. Your application did not fully meet the criteria for the artistic quality of the activity or its ongoing effect on artistic practice or both. I don't know if you followed that. I didn't follow that. And he didn't follow it either. And so he says the refusal letter invited us to telephone to discuss our application. So I did. First I asked what the above sentence meant, because it was gobbledygook <laughs> to me. Turned out it was gobbledygook also to the person I spoke to. Although he denied it, I was left with the feeling that dealing with a publisher who produced books on sport wasn't quite the Arts Council's thing. Perhaps I should have put in our application that as well as being white and British, why do they need to know such things? I am also a Radio 4 listener and Guardian reader. I don't wear corduroy trousers, though. So you can see where he's going with that. Um, who'd like to be the first person to, to speak up on this potentially quite controversial sub subject? I, I personally think it's it's very local council thinking. You know, these guys running it, they it's not their money. They don't really mind. They get too many middle bureaucrats involved who think, well, let's kind of just shift some money here instead of there. Save a quick buck. Pay me a bit more. Um, nobody's really using it anyway. You know, it, it's, it sounds just like a, it's, it's just for the sake of it. That, that's what it sounds like to me. You know, as, as in, in the readout that you, you read out just there, they haven't thought about, oh, we're still in talks. It's very typical and it makes me very angry as a taxpayer and so on and so on. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Kind of being on on the fringes of the art world um, myself, um, you see funding for the most hilarious things. Uh, a guy I worked with once got research funding through various sources to explore the different colours of tumble dryer fluff for a master's degree. Um, oh, I'm not making that up. That's real. Uh, good luck to him. I hope it went well. It's always purple. Fantastic. Experience. I could have saved him a lot of work. Um, and, and many other things, and other many worthwhile things go on also. It, it seems to me it's, um, it's the usual parsimony. What can we trim off? What's not important? What creates the headlines? I find it curious that a sport book got 
turned down because I have a very Orwellian view of the role of sport in uh, modern culture in that it keeps the proles busy whilst real things that they should be worried about uh, pass unnoticed. It's it's just the usual corner-cutting, nobody will notice. Oh, maybe people don't read so much. They obviously haven't noticed the kind of whole pot of phenomenon and other things. They forget that books and literature pass on information and knowledge. I'm surprised at the British Council. I can't imagine their French counterparts letting any opportunity to promote French culture uh, slip for a second. You know, the Francophone world will increase as, as, as the British Council contracts its influence, I think. Yeah. It's just... Lost opportunities, uh, good books will go unnoticed, good ideas will be passed around less, and so on. It's a shame, but it's the usual short-sighted parsimony that passes for government in this day and age, I think. Beverly, um, this is an issue in, in, in the States, isn't it? I mean, a lot of Americans I, I've uh, met um, have firm views either one way or the other about uh, the public funding of the arts. Uh, where, where do you stand on this? Well, I don't really pay that much attention because... I don't know anyone who's really funded that way. I'm not really in touch with it. I mean, it's over here, a lot of times it's kind of hand in glove with, you know, finding people to, you know, sponsor you, support you and everything. So I don't think we have, even though we do have, uh, you know, grants and things that you can get, it's not really heavily toward the arts. And a lot of times those things seem to go to pet projects of various congressmen. So I think we we have the same problem with the bureaucracy, but in our case it's the elected officials and, you know, sometimes they get turned over in an election and their little pet projects go away. I, I don't think we have quite the uh, structure that the European countries do. I could be wrong. I mean, I, uh, Donna would probably be able to address that better than I. Um, it's just not something I'm that knowledgeable about over here. Well, um, what, what did we say? I know that uh, Donna's just sent me a text message. Um, I think she's come out of her conference. Now, Donna, is there any possibility the technology is working? You can hear me well? I can hear you. Can- ah, fantastic. Isn't that seamless? Isn't that brilliant? Amazing. Yeah, terrific. Um, how are you? How's the conference going? And um, get, just get, let's just have a two or three minute update on that before we return to the subject. Well, I've been attending the SCBWI conference in Miami. That's the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And today was the writers intensive portion where we actually did some writing exercises and uh, we're with a couple of writers and um, a, an editor from a publishing house and they uh, it was great um, really did some good exercises and got a lot of good input fantastic uh, have you um, heard what we've got to um, in the show this evening well I think eliminating arts funding is the beginning of the downfall of civilization I, I think that once we stop funding arts um, what are we going to spend it on really uh, there's so many ways that arts enhance our lives um, there's so many ways that the arts can keep people out of jail that help our kids uh, so to eliminate arts funding is foolish and short-sighted right well that's a very good summary i mean i i, I, I totally agree with you the the thing is though i mean as dave says um how many people do you actually know who've ever benefited from this i mean the, 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 there's a, i think there's always a strong suspicion uh, whether you're dealing with um something like the arts council or indeed british uh, funding for films and so on that it's sort of um, a bit of an old boys um Network. Well, I think that uh, PBS is a great example of public-funded uh, television 
here, and it's terrific. It's educational, and it's better than most of the pablum on TV. It's an interesting idea because I think in current arts funding, there's a, there's a great thirst for novelty, which is kind of an aside. But to, to reminisce about something that sounds like a hallucination I had when I was 19, um, when I was uh, a, an art student and struggling... Do mushrooms come into this day? No, uh, samosas do actually, but samosas. I won't mention them directly. Um, uh, I was visiting my father in his offices in Regent Street, and I was a struggling fine artist and questioning the value and the meaning of arts in the 20th century, as was. And uh, an old Indian gentleman was in his office. This is where it gets a bit hallucinatory. It's kind of like Wayne's World with the uh, Indian <laughs> guide. You know? And and he said very simply, uh, you know, when a when a country or a nation has uh, no culture it has nothing yeah. i think that is profound and and yeah. true yeah well the, the problem is we can't put it we can't put a price tag on it can we that's the the, the great i mean I, it sounds as if we're all in sort of depressing agreement here we're not going to have a huge right ding dong at all um anyone got any final well, thoughts it, on that before we move on it's less less likely that we're going to get another tracy m in though isn't it that that's surely going to be to count for something I wonder if part of it has to do also with the advent of the internet, with the advent of of satellites. Uh, The world is shrinking so dramatically that a lot of things that led to a British identity or a French identity, it's all being homogenized so that it it makes it a, a lot more difficult to come up with you know, fine arts that depict the character of a nation. And mm. it may be that this is part of that, too. It, it, it's just, you know, we're, we're kind of get moving away from the idea of the, the more national-centric model. Um, I'm with Donna, though. I You know, you need funding. You need some way to support those who, let's face it, the writing of a book is not something you do in a day. It, it requires massive amounts of time, and you know, for most of us, we have to go out and hold a, you know, nine to five job. But it's awfully nice for those who get the funding, so they can focus on the craft yeah. and and okay. work at their craft. I don't know whether I, I entirely agree with that. Let's have, let's have a ding dong, um, <laughs> nurse bell, ding Round dong. One. Yeah, um, you know, you you think about something like uh, the Federal Arts Project that's you know springboard of people like Pollock and so on. Um, I'd I'd argue the fine arts are actually certainly in in Britain a kind of an embracing a kind of parochial subtext. It, it's all about Englishness and and quirkiness and trying to export that. And I think we may see a return to that kind of slightly underhand, dodgy dealing that went on with the Federal Arts Project and the promotion of, of American painting to combat Russian culture. And I think, you know, we've got this whole business with the British Council in Russia at the minute. And I think politicians are start gonna, starting to get involved again. And I think we may see this kind of return to, to cultural um, uh, identity being a useful kind of international tool. Yeah, that was that was um, that, um, you know one of the uh, most extraordinary benefits of the Cold War actually. That if you were at, at all involved in the arts and you had a friend who knew a friend, you could probably get uh, funny money fun- funding from the CIA. I mean, an awful lot of cultural enterprises started like that. 
quite extraordinary how many did. I mean, the Paris Review, I, I understand, got quite a lot of its its funding uh, from um, you know um, spies, basically. Um, right. Let me um, let's 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 move on. And I've, um, I've singularly sort of failed to provoke any kind of um, unpleasantness there. No, no gloves really came off. And unfortunately, I've still, <laughs> I still continue in a relentlessly positive mood, which is um, perhaps somewhat unseasonal from the time of year. We've got some good news. Uh, from the uh, from the states, U.S. Census Bureau. Three little news items here too, which are good. One of which is stupid. Um, the US- <laughs> <laughs> it is. I think it's very stupid. The U.S. Census Bureau reported the book sales actually rose seven point five percent in November two thousand and seven to one point one nine billion dollars. Did they get to- Jordan's wow. autobiography? No, no, they don't. They don't know who Jordan is, and if, uh, do our American friends a favour and don't tell them. Um, okay. <laughs> Compared to more modest overall retail sales gain of 6.7%, in other other words, books, um, at retail level at least, performed disproportionately well. The upward gain helped put bookstore sales in the black for the first 11 months, up 0.8% to $14.65 billion. Um, that's the first piece of good news. Next piece of good news, which I think is uh, has got a bit of a spin on it, actually. But nevertheless, why not? The American Booksellers Association welcomed 115 new bookstores that opened for business in 2007. This was the third year in a row that the number of bookstore openings topped 100. Now, you see, what, they, what they're not carefully saying is how many have, have actually closed and how many of those bookstores, of course, are, are a nice sort of independent, friendly bookstores as opposed to vast chains. But um, anyway, you know, 115 new bookstores opening can't be bad. The third piece of news, which is uh, taken straight from the New York Times um, yesterday, I think, um, was when a couple of their reporters sat down after Steve Jobs' latest press conference, and during which he unveiled precious little, actually. And they said to him, what about this Amazon Kindle, then? What do you think Think about it, Steve? What's going to happen? Are we going to see something cool and sexy coming, coming from Apple in this line? And he said, quote, no, 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 it doesn't matter how good or bad the product is. The fact is that people don't read anymore. That's what Steve says. People don't read anymore. 40% of the people in the US, this is Steve speaking still, read one book or less last year. The whole conception, that's of the Kindle, the whole conception is flawed at the top because people don't read anymore. So uh, what do we think about those new news items, chaps? Oh, I want to wait and see what his new gadget is he's getting ready to unveil. Well, that's a very, very, you know, um, a shrewd point, actually, Beverly, because he, he's done this kind of thing before. He sort of said, I'm ah. thinking the iPhone. Yeah, exactly. I'm he's, thinking the iPhone. Yeah, yeah. He's, he said, I'm not interested in, in that market at all. There's no money. At, and then, you know, three or four years later, you find him unveiling a brand new product in that area. So he is capable of a little disinformation. Well, I think in the case of the iPhone, it was like a four month window. When he said, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to get involved in that kind of technology, and then out came the iPhone. So yeah. that's why I say it, it, it's hard to know with Steve Jobs. He he truly is a bit of an eccentric. Um, you just have to look at his his career, and that's nothing wrong with that, but it's I always take statements like that with a grain of salt. Yeah, so maybe this is good news too. Maybe, you know, Steve Jobs saying no one's reading anymore, maybe that's good news too, because Steve speaks doublespeak. Anyone else uh, like to volunteer? Well, I think the book sales in November mean that the writer's strike has been good for books. People have nothing better to do now except for watch reality TV. That's a very, very good point. Watch Ustream, maybe. 
Yes. <laughs> there you e- go. Either that what, or, or um, horror. horror well, films, uh, what may horror. also be helping the sales is due to the fact that we are sliding into a recession. Money spent was on things that the simpler things, things that uh, the gift receiver might enjoy for a longer period of time instead of the, you know, gadgetry, yeah. something a little simpler and cheaper. Yeah. Exactly. So that may help see, too. We, we, we don't do that over here. We, we buy goats for each other. Um, goats in third world countries that you can sponsor. <laughs> we also wear paper Every crowns, book, so I understand it. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, those things that come, what are they, crackers? Is that what those come out of? <laughs> what, a goat? <laughs> no, the paper crowns. Oh, right, yeah, sorry. You this, have to have an enormous is... cracker for a goat. <laughs> no, I was thinking the paper crown. And this is oh. the, this, folks, this is the cream of British literati. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great image, though, isn't it? Pull this cracker, Maud. <laughs> We'll have milk for the year. And then it, then it turns out to be a giant, giant pair of jacks and a dice or something. <laughs> right, I'm going to get, get you back on track if it kills me. Um, very serious very serious item coming out. Actually quite dull, so I don't think we'll spend an awful lot of time talking about it. Uh, it's dull because I don't think it's really happened, actually. Um, P.O.D. Um, no, it's not pod. It's print on demand. Um, there's, uh, there's a piece in Publishers Weekly saying POD heads to the mainstream. Now, excuse me if I don't get too excited about this because I have heard all this before. And I actually, some years ago, I did get quite excited about POD. Um, I went to um, Frankfurt Book Fair. I don't always go to Frankfurt, actually. But this was one of the years when I did go. Um, and it's, it's a mind-blowing experience. If you're, My microphone is slowly sinking down here, and I can't actually touch it. Otherwise, it'll deafen everyone, so I'm going to be slowly sinking out of the picture. Um, if you um, want to get a, a sort of grasp on... And maybe this would be good for Steve Jobs. If you want to get a, a grasp on really how, how vast the world's publishing industry is, you want to go to Frankfurt Book Fair, and it will blow your mind. I mean, there are halls and halls and halls for well, actually full of books that are not published in English. That's the first surprise. There are usually about two or three very big halls. There's the American Hall, there's British and one or two others um, that are published in English, and all, all the rest aren't, actually. Um, and it's just, you know, just wandering through. It can take you days to get through um, all, all these vast halls of books. So that's, that's a pretty mind-blowing experience. And also, if you're interested in the technical side of uh, publishing... Um, there's a very big exposition too, um, to do with you know massive great printing presses and um, desktop publishing and all the rest of it, and uh, that was when I f- a few years ago now it must be five or six years that was when I first saw POD and I was hugely impressed by it and I thought that this really was the future because basically it's just a big box you can have anywhere the back of your um, Waterstones uh, or Borders uh, bookstore, um, and it's either hooked up to the internet or it's got lots and lots of data inside it doesn't really matter where it gets it its data from and you say um, I'd like a copy of that book that came out in uh, 1968 please and they say yes um, no problem at all sir that'll be $20 it'll be ready for you in about 20 minutes so you wander off have a coffee come back and collect your book beautifully printed Um, and I I, you know got so excited by this I thought this must be the future of course it hasn't happened we haven't seen it anywhere the only place that it has happened is on the internet where you do get companies such as um, lightning source who are actually doing quite well um, and 
I'll just read you the first paragraph of, of this piece um, by Calvin Reed from Publishers Weekly. Walking into Lightning Source's sprawling plant just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, CEO Jay Kirby Best recites a list of print-on-demand milestones. Lightning Source has grown from three employees in 97 to more than 500 today. The company digitally scans about 2,000 books a week and prints 1.2 million books a month. Quote, it took us seven years to print 10 million books, says Best, as we stroll through the 159,000 square foot building. This year, we published 10 million books in the first 11 months. So, you know, you can't argue with that. Although I would like to know specifically what sort of books they are. I yeah, where they went. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of um, POD on the internet is um, is not much better, really, than vanity publishing. So is this something that maybe I've got wrong? Maybe this is uh, the, the future again? Um, Richard, give us, give us a lead on this. Um, I've, I've always liked the idea of, of POD. Uh, a, a friend of mine um, advised me of Lulu uh, when it first came yeah. online. I was thinking of Lulu. Uh, urged me to get onto it. Um, but I, I personally just, just don't feel that I'm there yet. Can you, can you just uh, tell us uh, what Lulu is, actually? Because there will be some people who don't know what it is. Lulu um, is a POD website allowing people to upload their own manuscripts, kind of set out uh, a, a basic layout um, and allow people, uh, the general public, to log on to Lulu and buy their book. Um, and, of course, then it, it's printed as and when it's, it's downloaded. And um, the, the author gets some of the costing. Well, isn't, and the, this, isn't this just vanity publishing gone legit? Well, they, they, you know, everyone seems to be saying it's, it's the new thing and it's great and it, let's get rid of publishers because they're just a bottleneck and they're taking all our money. Um, but vanity publishing, that, that's exactly the reason why I haven't got into it yet because if, if I can't get an agent, then am I really good enough? There is so much out there. I mean, as you said, the 10 million books in 11 months, that's such a scary prospect yeah, that there is. are that many yeah, books I mean, out there. Why? Yeah, I mean, it's, getting, getting your book you know, printed has never been a problem. You know, I mean, there's always been a print around the corner. You don't have to use POD for that. The problem has been marketing, distribution, and getting it in the hands of the consumer and trying to make some money out of it. And that's really why people, one of the reasons that people have been using publishers. But we've got three, um, we've got three authors um, uh, with us tonight. So let's just go around and, and ask each one, um, Beverly, is this something that you, you'd ever consider doing? Um, probably not for the same reason. It, you know, if I'm not good enough to have an agent represent me or take care of me i i really don't want to take it on myself i you know the time and money investment just isn't there for me the thing that occurs to me is that it's probably in a way good for the environment to do it that way so i'm wondering if eventually the big publishers are going to trend toward doing something closer to that by tracking sales more closely good point yeah absolutely yeah could easily be tied up i think um university textbooks i think it's great for for things like that you know, uh, textbooks and, and maybe books that are, are niche market where you don't need a huge press run. That might be good for that. Yes, it, it makes a lot of sense in certain quarters, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's to go off on a tangent again, <laughs> it kind of makes me think of something like the guys out of uh, Sleeper, you know, the Woody Allen film. You, yeah. you go into this slick, huge mall in your silver jumpsuit with your, with your kind of uh, silver shades and you put some money into a hole in the wall and you get a, a book on a disc in about 20 seconds and consume it equally as quickly and walk out again. So it, it has a kind of a disposability about it that is a bit worrying. I think the environmental concerns are probably the the most important ones. But it's the thing that I think would be a shame about it is if the mainstream did go that way, is you lose that whole kind of browsing experience that is 
integral in purchasing a book, isn't it? You wander in and you flick a few pages and you look at this and I'm an R over that. It wouldn't yeah. be the same sitting down at a computer terminal and reading a few pages on screen, would it? Well, that's right. We, you know, this is where we run in the danger of coming back into our discussion of the Kindle. I think we should leave the Kindle alone for a few uh, weeks, actually, until, until maybe we, we've got some sales figures, because they've been suspiciously absent so far. Now, I should just, uh, for the people who are actually watching us at the moment, this will make no sense at all to people who are listening to the podcast. People who are watching, I should, I should say that we played a little trick on Dave earlier today. When he was out, we snuck into his house and surreptitiously planted a camera there so that we can actually see him right now if you look on the screen. <laughs> Has he got his trousers on? Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, he has. Phew. <laughs> Nearly a nasty moment. <laughs> and there he is again. <laughs> you have no idea where I'm going. That's the worrying part. <laughs> Where's my shrooms? <laughs> uh, well, well, we're still being mean to Dave. Um, earlier uh, this week, just a day ago actually, he posted um, a very short question on the Ask the Agent section on the uh, Litopia Writers' Colony forum, which is a place where uh, members can go and uh, pose questions for, for me, because I'm, I'm the agent there, and hopefully get reasonably timely answers and reasonably intelligent answers, although I don't guarantee that. Um, and actually it's quite interesting that um, when somebody does post a question there, if I don't answer for a day or two, um, a lot of other people jump in and give advice that's at least as good as anything I could say. <laughs> We're so. just making up. We no, along. we always need you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to believe that, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd get really scared when you all get together and turn yourself into an agent's collective. <laughs> little, little oh, there's an idea. Oh, no, I should have said Oh, that. hey, Donna. Oh, <laughs> Oh dear. Um, this is what Dave Dave wrote. It was a desperately short uh, question, incredibly hard to answer in, in any depth. Though um, it says everyone's writing for children and YA's at the moment. I should explain YA is trade jargon for young adult, and he's absolutely right. I mean, really, everyone is trying to write for that market right now. You wouldn't believe the number of submissions I'm getting and uh, the number of submissions publishers are getting. Indeed, publishers themselves recognise as the single most profitable area in publishing, and so they're encouraging all their adult authors, too, to write for the children's and young adult market. Is there any advice, Dave says, you would give beyond advice that counts for any writing to someone trying to cut it in this increasingly competitive market? I think there are a lot of people who'd appreciate any thoughts you might have on this. That's kind of left me stumped a bit because it's such a big, wide open-ended question. Um, I I want to um, pass it back to our panel of gurus. Before I do that, Dave, do you want to um, just explain your sort of thinking behind that? Because it is, it is a very big, broad question there. Well, it, it, it occurred to me, really, that um, I just wondered whether the drivers in, in writing for, for that market are the same, uh, whether the same things have the same prominence or importance, uh, and if there are things that aren't generic to writing in general. I, I have to say, when I asked the question, I actually wanted it secret, the answer secretly, so you didn't tell anybody else. Really? <laughs> you shouldn't have put it on the board then, really. No, that's true. Sorry yeah. about that. Otherwise, yeah, to give you an sort of unfair advantage over everyone else. Well, especially since Don and I both hang out in that house, exactly. too. <laughs> yeah. Floor in my logic there, wasn't yeah. it? Um, um, but it? Because I was thinking, you know, genres like fantasy and science fiction have a completely different set of drivers from chick lit and and crime and thriller and so on and and i just wondered whether there were things that weren't generic that we could separate out for that genre or not 
if I sort of go last uh, on this, I, I will appear to be the most intelligent person, probably, because I'll have benefited <laughs> from what everyone else says. Um, who'd like to sort of jump in and um, maybe um, give one or two pointers, not just to, to Dave, but to anyone else who's listening and interested really I, in this, this area? I, I can only talk uh, from the perspective of having had a masterclass last year uh, on self-publishing. Uh, the guy who spoke to us was actually from, from the NAW course, it, guy's name was robert ronson he um self-published a book called olympic mind games hmm. and non-fiction being self-publishing uh no it's children's fiction okay um and he with the idea that he is going to self-publish and he's going to have to self-market it and so he saw initially that he'd get a charity involved um the stories are uh, set in the olympic village it's about aliens and kids <clears throat> and having said it in a sports environment he felt that maybe he should get a, a sports charity on board and give a pound of every book sold to the charity. So he was already thinking along the lines of getting something in the real world to help market the book and, and you know, yeah. show it out to the kids involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for him, um, they raised the point that you're using the term Olympic in your title, and the real Olympic team might have something <laughs> to say about that. We suggest Ooh, that you go yes, and speak. I can, see, I can just see the lawsuit right now. Well, the, they, they pulled out, and the Olympic team said, no, you can't, um, otherwise we'll sue you. And then um, he got on the, the John Humphreys show, oh. uh, on, the, on, on his radio show, and he had his 15 minutes of fame on there, talking about how the Olympic team had told him to bugger off, and mm. how he, he was going to go ahead with it anyway. Um, and it, eventually they said, well, you're only going to do a short print run, so we're going to let you use it. Um, so, again, although he wasn't able to use his initial idea of a charity, he um, used um, he turned it around into something far bigger by getting into conflict with, with the Olympic team. Yeah. So, you know, if, if did, you can, did that translate into sales? Do you know? Because I haven't heard of it myself. He, um, his initial print run, I believe, was 500 uh, he's now done, um, I think, uh, a thousand um, sales. Uh, I think he's gone for a third print, yeah. so that, that, yeah. that's coming up for a, a, an extra 500, that's, I believe. That's very interesting. I mean, that's, that's a little little tangential. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, what's it, what, what you're basically saying is that because it is becoming such a, a crowded market to do it conventionally and to go into... You know the usual suspects as far as children's publishing is concerned. It's, it's it's you know it's worth considering doing it yourself. I've always thought self-publishing is is an option whose time will probably come. I think it's in some ways it's been easier to do it in the states rather than uh, the UK because you know you you've got sort of very clearly definable markets as states themselves, and it is it's quite feasible just to or a relatively small investment to publish relatively locally within your state to take that as a test market. And if that that works, you've then at the very least you've got an interest in case history to take to a big publisher who might be able to scale it up. I think self-publishing is, is, is an idea whose time probably will come through the internet. It's not really happened um, yet. I mean, I haven't seen a number one bestseller that's, that's been sold like that. And it's just, I'm just my, my only other sort of encounter with that market, although it is something I'm very interested in. Um, but I, 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 need, I need to see all the dots connect at the moment. And, and the, you know, the marketing and distribution dots are not connecting. The only direct experience I've had, perhaps a little uh, disillusioning, because um, I, I've come across or actually been approached by one or two people who have self-published their own children's books. And ha in, in, in two cases, at least, had some you know, quite good commercial success. Certainly enough to go to a publisher and say, if you want to scale this up, 
it probably will work commercially. And in both uh, cases, I, I had sort of informal discussions with publishers. I didn't take the client on, in fact, because uh, I just wanted to, you know, to, to, to probe the market. In both cases, publishers all unanimously said we're not interested at all because it wasn't originated from us which I thought was, was rather strange. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's like everything else. This is the current interest. So everybody who's trying to break in, everybody who's trying to continue to, to write is looking at this market. Um, certainly Harry Potter brought a lot of interest to the market again. I don't think we can ever do a podcast without mentioning Harry Potter, can we? I mean, we, we think, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, it, it's a milestone. It, it, it's a stake in the road, just yeah. just yeah. as Dickens was in his day yeah. or uh, Twain over here. I mean, yeah. that that's, I, I think it's going to be years before we really, the dust settles and we see the impact of Harry Potter and, yeah. and what J.K. Rowling accomplished with that. Yeah. Um, now, in my own case, the, the fantasy book I worked on was originally an adult fantasy that was geared for adult fantasy markets. And when I was sending it out last year, I had a very kind agent respond, said, charming story. I like the premise, but my dear, unfortunately, I don't represent children's books. Hmm. And of no. course, I'm sitting there, huh? <laughs> you, you know, you, that so, used to be the norm. That used to be the norm. And I, yeah, I, I can't so that was, a, that was a step back. And well, let's look at this again. And then I'm thinking, yeah, she's right. It actually scale it down a little it probably would do better in that market mm. um, but I like children's books myself so for me it was a very easy step across yes I think the idea of writing a children's book just because that's where the market is I mean that's the same issue you have with all the people who are trying to come up with another Da Vinci Code it's not their own genre they probably haven't read in the genre mm. And therefore, they're just trying to break in. Again, yes. nothing wrong with it, but it take it, it makes it a little harder for the people whose genre that is, who yes. are already writing it because they love the genre and they, they like writing those stories as opposed to, well, this may be a quick path into publication, yes. then I can go back to what I want to do. One of the things that I hear from the writers at these conferences is that when they tell people what they do, people sort of pat them on the head and say, oh, that's very cute. Uh, maybe you'll be a real writer one day. And I think that's the attitude of people who try to cross genres and dabble in children's writing, is that they think it's easy and that it, it's not as, as hard as maybe uh, some other genre. And, and I would just say you have to approach it professionally like any other genre. You have to read the books. You have to know your market. And one of the things that's unique to children's is you really have to pay attention to the age range. And they're very tiny yeah. age ranges. You've got picture books. You've got chapter books, middle grade, uh, ranges from younger middle grade to older middle grade. Um, Harry Potter's considered middle grade. And then you've got young adult where you can actually have a little bit of a hint of sex and violence. And yeah. I'd actually like to hear your perspective on that. That's been one of the topics in Latopia's discussion groups is how much sex and or violence can you have in a young adult? Yes. Okay. I'm storing that one up. Um, Richard. Um... <laughs> Sorry, sidelined by the, the message boards there. Um, yeah, we actually snuck into Richard home as well early today and uh, uh, made this video recording. <laughs> Don't show my wife I was on that bike. Oh, she'd kill me. She's not <laughs> 
Right, that's giving you a moment to compose your thoughts, Richard. Uh, no, you've thrown me off completely. What were we talking about? Um, it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, why are you children? I don't know why it bothers sometimes. I really don't. I don't even oh. <laughs> right, let me let me make a few, a few basic points um, about um, children's publishing, and then you you can you can get all the glory, Richard, and come in later and summarise everything. Okay. First thing is that uh, children are voracious readers. You know that that's one of the great things. I mean. Uh, if you're an adult and you happen to get hooked by um, a particular author, John Grisham or something like that, then you know you, you have a little bit of a passion for those books and the latest and greatest book comes out and you want to buy it. That's nothing compared to what children do. You know, when they get into books, they, my goodness, they really get into them and they just read and read and read and read and, read. Um, and thank heavens they do as well, actually. What would the future of our species be if, if they didn't? Um, thank you very much, Steve Jobs, for your unwanted advice so they are they are voracious readers and it means that you know if you get it right then you can you know you can just keep selling them books as long as you can keep writing them that's the next bit of pressure that 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 happens of course when you do sort of start to ride this tidal wave of success in children's literature that people just want more and more and more from you all the time can you do two books next year maybe three i don't know reduce the word count on each one we can get by with you know maybe forty-five thousand words see if you can do four books next year um, that, that can really you know, stretch a writer in all kinds of different directions that you don't want to be stretched. There are lots, of, as everyone has, has, has said, I mean, there are, there are lots and lots of very specific genres. For a new, uh, new writer, you shouldn't really, unless you're really brave, you shouldn't really try to write outside of a genre. I think you know, you've got to immerse yourself enough in, in the, the, the world of children's books to, to recognise what genres there are and to, to go for one that you personally find appealing. What Beverly has just said is absolutely bang on in terms of ages. Ages are very, very well defined um, in the children's area. So very often I, I find submissions that you know do work within a genre, but they're completely wrong. There's sort of there's a discrepancy going on in terms of perhaps the subject matter. And the language, the language might be, you know, very old, aimed for sort of 14 plus. The subject matter might be very young. That's, that's obviously not going to work. If all you want to do is sort of dip, dip a toe in, in the, the water, you can actually start writing on a very sort of low level, and possibly not even get your name on the book. Um, there are sort of, I don't really approve of these things, but there are sort of word factors out there. I think some of them were started by agents, actually, who sort of have a, you know, a, a reasonably good feel for the market. They come up with an idea for a series, sell it to a publisher, and then they're looking to, <clears throat> to a whole range of um, writers to, you know, to maybe produce 60,000 words for $5,000 or something like that. As an agent, I don't much like that. But if you, you know, if you want the practice of writing um, and getting published and getting some money for it, well, that's that's a possibility. And if you know, if you want to get in on that level, I wouldn't blame you for uh, for trying just to to get the um, get the experience under your belt. But at the other end of the scale, I'd say don't. And I, I find this happens so much actually to um, to first time authors. Don't inhibit yourself. Don't don't turn your back on a big idea because children love particularly big ideas. I mean, it's huge and, and, and new, not a cliche. I mean, kids are very, you know, they're very, very receptive to cliches. They know if they've seen, seen something before and if it feels a bit tired, they'll recognise it straight away. But a, a big idea, a big new idea is, is something that's that 
has enormous power over children's imagination and also over publishers' imaginations too. And so often I find um, people on their, on their, particularly on their first project, just honing things down and just not really seizing the big opportunities to, to make you know, an interesting story really, really big. I think sometimes it boils down to a matter of, of confidence really in, in, in the way that you approach your writing. I don't know if any of that's any use. Richard, over to you now to say something really intelligent. I completely agree. <laughs> That's, that's the most intelligent thing you've said tonight. <laughs> Unfortunately, it'll be the last. No, um, I mean, I'm, I, as well as everybody else, is trying to jump on the bandwagon if ever I can get my finger out of my bottom and onto the keyboard. Hopefully, I'll clean it before that. But um, in so doing, I have been thinking about what is what is the, the current issues, in particularly in England, uh, uh, and and how can I relate that to uh, a, a story aimed at twelve-year-olds? Uh, in in my case, I'm I'm trying to resolve around this kind of diminish. What is going on with your eyes? <laughs> Just a little tired, Richard. That's all. I, really, no, no, really, I am paying attention. Really, <laughs> um, the the idea of of libraries diminishing uh, and and less people reading, um, and I think I'm really trying to pick up on issues such as that because that particularly is an issue in relation to children and their reading um a lot of people have said particularly last year you know less children are reading and yet in complete contrast the harry potter phenomenon had more children reading so i for, for me i think it's it's finding something that that is is going to grab children and possibly adults alike and i for, for me personally i think this library's issue is 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 the big thing if i can get on board with that 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 could relate into getting libraries on board with perhaps helping to market the book mm. was i ever to get it published yeah. um and and, and I, I think uh with more and more people trying to write young adult and children's books uh it, it's an it's the need to find something controversial or, or something that a lot of people would get on the back of uh, I, I know a, a lot of people are on, on the back of keeping libraries open and yet the middle management of local councils I, I work in a library myself uh, are, are all for gradually phasing them out and turning them into community centres or places where people can just use computers um, so um, I, I, I guess really essentially it's getting a bee in, the, in your own bonnet about an issue and really infusing your writing with that not becoming too didactic uh, and, and thrusting it down people's throats because then that's not really telling a story at all. Sorry, let me just summarise the uh, library situation because I think there's a little discrepancy. I want to check on this actually um, because you know we, we're always pretty transatlantic here on the Taper Writers Podcast, later the Taper After Dark. In the UK, libraries are, seem to be something of an endangered species in terms of um, their traditional role. And as Richard says, and he knows very well because he is he, you know, he's a librarian, he works in a library. You know, uh, uh, local authorities who are responsible for their funding are, are desperately finding, trying to find ways to cut their budgets and to turn them into things that libraries have never been before and in other words sort of the books seem to be leaving by by the back door in the US my knowledge of uh, library system is, is less uh, strong than it is in the UK but I, I do know that uh, when you're trying to particularly get a children's book out there 
one of the things that you really do want is you want to get the librarians on your side because they are a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, um, I know here in Indianapolis, we just went through a massive uh, restructure of our old library. I mean, it's this beautiful old, old building. They kept the facade and put a nice, shiny, spanking, brand new building behind it. So libraries are healthy here. And I know uh, most elementary schools, most high schools will have a librarian and a library still. So I don't think they're going the way of the dodo yet over here. No, good. Well, long, long may it continue. Just on one comment you made, Peter, yeah. on the uh, writing for children, when you said the pressure to keep writing, that, that, I, that makes me remember L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Now, a lot of people don't realize he wrote 14 more Oz books. Wow. He tried to write wow. other things, but his dear little children, as he called them, just kept begging him for more stories about Oz. On the fifth book, he came up with this idea that Oz was going to be invisible and he wasn't going to be able to talk to them anymore and good, done, I can go on and write other things. And a few years later, when the other things didn't pan out and he had to go back to writing about Oz, he came up with this wonderful device where he was in contact with the wonderful Wizard of Oz and they were using a wireless radio set to communicate, so he was getting all caught up on the Oz gossip. But this is an example of a writer who just was kept writing this one series. That was yeah. the only thing that yeah. really yeah. worked yeah. for him. Which, and the voracious goes, children who were demanding a book every year. Can which really goes to, to prove the point that um, kids are, are quite faddy with, with what they go for. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the Philip Pullman, uh, for example, with his Nor- uh, Northern Lights and the, the Dark Materials trilogy, he, he's written uh, at least four other books, but they've had nowhere near as much success. So um, cer- certainly I, I think it's a case of it, it's a story that grabs and, and not the author. Can I just check something in there? I'm trying to answer my own question to an extent here. I think it just occurred to me, a bit of an epiphany, if you like, um, and maybe a completely uh, useless one. I think a lot of good children's writing, you think um, Harry Potter and Philip Pullman and other things, you think about the places they actually took their protagonists in terms of what happened to them and the emotions of the children reading them and the adults indeed engaged in doing that. I think it's perhaps more than for adults it's about pushing comfort zones and actually taking people beyond their normal experience of emotional extremes because that's what children do all the time in their development isn't it they're constantly pushing and changing and trying to find new things and that's what you've got to do as an author isn't it I think you may have something there yeah uh, right, I'm going to have to kill you all now because um, I'm, I'm sorry, idea, but that, that, no, 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 it's not. That's the, that's the secret of Carol Astra. That that is that you touched on there. It's it's the the one thing we we prized out of Carol Astra last year. That that really just to to look in yourself and 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 really put yourself in your character's shoes and and go for the emotion. Uh, how does it feel for me? Why am I thinking this? Where would I go from here? I think well, it's this part weekend of it, I'll be interviewing Sid Fleischman, who won the Newbery for The Whipping Boy, so I may be able to get some insight from him. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah I think it's a bit more than that. It's not just about us. I think it's just probably having a, a, a young uh, son running around the place, and you see that development and change so fast. It's about they constantly strive to push their comfort zones in a way 
adults don't. They're always exploring and pushing and trying. And our job is to give them a context and environment to do that so that they can gain some experience vicariously of these things before they encounter them in real terms, isn't it? Sorry, it's the teacher in me coming out again as well. Um, no, we appreciate the didactic element, Dave. It, it does us all good. If only most students did, it would be so, life would be so much easier. But um, it's, I think it's very important we, we recognise that kind of growth and change thing. Yeah. And it may be right, it may be wrong, I don't know, but it, it's gonna, I'm going to reflect upon that and uh, yeah. consult with uh, Professor Daniels later and see what he says. Uh, you're talking about Jack Daniels. I'm, I'm actually, I've been so busy pressing buttons and so on, I actually haven't kept up to date at all with the chat that's been going on. But I see there is mention of this. I mean, I, I think they're having a completely separate meeting, actually. <laughs> it looks like it. it does, There's a party it? going on over there. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I'm going to stop. Wait till the morass. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> James Blunt. I mean, a lot of this is like sort of free association. The James Blunt of, of writing. I had that earlier. I, I was reading that, and I couldn't keep up with, with what you were saying. Well, quite. My eyes, my ears. Were just a lot, there's a lot of salsa dancing going on here. Sexy Latin boys. Um, that's not my cup of tea, of course. I, I didn't write that. Uh, well, I, it says it says differently here, Richard. <laughs> what a Wi-Fi. Um, I don't know what else I'm going on about. Anyway, um, I, we've we've had forty-five, no, forty-six minutes, and I think that the time has come for me to say thank you very much, Beverly Gray. Thank you, Peter. Dave Bartram. Thank you. Donna Borman. Thank you. I hope you have a, a good. How long does it go on for? It goes on till Sunday, doesn't it? It goes on through Sunday, yes. Fantastic. It should be really interesting. Yeah, it should be. And we really do look forward to listening to um, any more interviews you, you can grab while you're there, Donna. Uh, thank, you, thank you very much to Richard Howes for joining us tonight. It just remains for me to say, if you would like to join us next week, we'll be doing more or less the same sort of thing with all kinds of different subjects here on the Litopia Writers Podcast slash Litopia After Dark. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, everybody. Hope to see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now for the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony, www.litopia.com. If you've enjoyed it, please give us some good word of mouth and tell all your friends about us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found at www.litopia.com slash podcast. If you're not already subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, and remember iTunes works both on the PC and the Mac, then we suggest you do so right now. You'll find it by far the easiest method of listening. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And if you do use iTunes, why not give us a review there too? Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your thoughts, comments, views, and suggestions. There's a handy and easy-to-use comment form on the Litopia website itself, but also you can send us an email, or you can even record your thoughts as an mp3 file and send that to us too our email address is podcast at litopia.com this is peter cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon <laughs>